0: you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at multiple chapters and as you're turning, um, turn to chapter 18 first. Um, As we come to this passage uh, we're talking about, it's it's hard in regards to a narrative because it's it's kind of an ongoing story. And so where do you stop? Um, Where is the break? And so we're going to be looking at places in uh, chapter 18 as well as 19 it gives us a flow into chapter 20 but we're going to be looking at the relationship between um, Jonathan and David and uh, I want you to see that relationship but I also want you to see as we prepare ourselves to come to think how do I see Christ in the passage because the story is not necessarily just about David and Jonathan Because if all you get is saying, oh, I need to be more like David and Jonathan and less like Saul, then you've missed the point. It's not just about being moral. It's just not about being good. It's about seeing how Christ is at the center of this relationship. And so I want you to see that as we come to the study this morning. So let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to give us guidance. Heavenly Father, again, we come into your presence and Lord, we come boldly. Not because of anything we do or who we are, but because of Christ alone. He is the one who stands. He is the one who even now sits as the conqueror of our foes. And he intercedes on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit even brings our groans and our cries. And he communicates to you in ways that we can't even begin to dream or imagine. But Lord, our prayer is very simple. Lord, change us. Do not leave us the same. Don't allow us to become bored with the gospel. Do not allow us to be overwhelmed with things of the world. But Lord, may we see how you teach us and build us and disciple us throughout our lifetimes so that we look more like our Savior every day. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we live in a day and an age where people lack in trust. They lack in loyalty, and it's, it's something that's weird. We have people who are very anxious. There's anxious uh, people for many things, but they're also living in that dichotomy of we also trust, don't we? We trust it that these chairs that you sat in would be able to hold you, and you didn't think about it. You didn't sit there and kind of go, well, I don't know if I want to sit down. I don't know if this is going to happen. You just assumed. You sat down, and you trusted. We assume that people are going to stay in their lanes, we assume and trust that people are going to stop at red lights. We assume they're going to go during the green lights. We assume a lot of things. We trust a lot of things. But it doesn't mean that we trust relationships. And that's something that's very different. And again, um, a lot of this has to deal with our experiences. If you've grown up in a home where you were brought up in a loving and a faithful home and people were loyal all the time, that affects how you view life. But if you grew up in a home where there was always disloyalty, where there's people always lying to you, that affects how you see life. And so what happens here is we have an opportunity where, where David and Jonathan are, are developing a relationship of trust and loyalty. And now they do it a specific way, but it's something that we as Christians should emulate. And we should emulate it because of Christ who does it for us. So the first thing we're going to look at is this Hesed love. And I want you to look at verse at, Chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, that were already read for us. And I want you to see some of the words. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. They were knit together in the soul. And he loved him as his own soul. Now, one of the things that we have to understand is that's what's known as a Hesed love. A Hesed love. Now, what is hesed? Now, in America, it's one of the bad things about our language. Is we use love for many different things. And it's nuanced according to the context. You can say, I love pizza. But if you say, if you meant I love my wife the same way that you love pizza, no. In the Greek, they had different words for it. So they would say something a little bit different. of Like, I love my wife this way. I love pizza this way. I love my fellow man this way. And one of those ways that they make a distinction is this word hesed. And hesed means a loyal love. A loyal love. Listen to what um, R.C. Sproul has to say as he defines this. Loyal love remains faithful to both the word of God and the people of God. Loyal love looks to the church not as a provider of religious services, but as the body of our Lord. It's our family. So some translate hesed as covenant love. So here we remember that family is not just emotional connections that can come and go, but we're family, and family is binding. Family is commitment. That's how we are to be to one another. We are to be in hesed love. Loyal love to one another. We are to be in commitment, not just saying, oh, well, certain people in this church don't like me, so I'm going to, that's it, I'm done, I'm out. And that's the society we live in. This should be a commitment to one another. No matter what we go through, no matter the struggles, no matter the trials that we go through, we're family, and family sticks together. Wasn't that that little blue creature or whatever? Stitch, yeah, there you go. So kids, remember Stitch? Family sticks together. That's the way it should be in the in the church. So we have this hested love that's being talked about. Now, this happens that there's this heart connection between David and Jonathan because of a couple things. One, because of the battle, the battle that has just gone on with David and Goliath. And so uh, let me give you a background to, to battles and stuff like that. For those who've been in the military, even if you haven't seen um, battle, Uh, you understand that part of what the military does is it tears you down as an individual and builds you up as a component, as a unit. And so if one person fails, at least when I was in, if one person fails, everybody fails. Because you're only strong as the weakest link, right? So this whole aspect is to tear people down as an individual and build them back up. And so there's things that happen in regards to battle. Let me give you a real-life situation of Desmond Doss. And Desmond Doss was the private first class of which the movie Hacksaw Ridge is based upon. Now, ha- D- Desmond Doss was the only one who has received the Congressional Medal of Honor for someone who was an objector, a conscientious objector. Now, part of this was because he came in, uh, he was raised Seventh-day Adventist. His faith to him is very real. He was a part of things growing up to where he said, I'm not going to hold a gun. I'm never going to take anybody's life. But he still felt called. He still felt called to go and be a part of the war situation, and he went as a medic. And he never once took a gun. But because he didn't take the gun, many of the people felt like he was—he was, uh, was going to be uh, someone to be watched over, not to be trusted. And so he was ostracized. And not only was he ostracized, but he was beaten. He was ridiculed. They wanted him to leave the military. They were trying to get him out multiple times, and yet he finds himself finally at a position where, on Hacksaw Ridge's four hundred foot cliff, where the people go up, and there's so many casualties that they're actually told to leave, and he remains on top. And he remains on top and begins to to go and to find all these injured people. And it's said that through the course of the night, this is how he prayed: he would go, he would bring one person back, let him down the cliff. Not just got them to the cliff, but let them down the 400 uh, feet down to the bottom so they can be taken care of. Through the night, this is how he prayed. Lord, please help me get one more. Lord, please help me get one more. Now he gives an account that he saved. He personally gave an account that he saved 50 people. His comrades that were there that were being saved said he saved more like 100 people that night. So they split the difference. So they give him an estimate for the Congressional Medal of Honor of saving these 75 people in the course of one night while being wounded. And he tells, retells the story, but not once, not even to his own son does he ever take credit. He gives all the glory to God. See, battles have a way of exposing who we truly are at the core. Why does God allow us to go through trials? You want to know a person? Watch them when they're under pressure. Listen, I'm in a position where I get to see the best of the best in people and I get to see the absolute worst. And you know when that happens? Weddings and funerals. When people are under pressure, some of the nastiest things that have ever happened, any things that I've seen have come at weddings and funerals because hardness exposes who we are at the core. So it is exposed who David was, it is exposed who Jonathan was. And so what happens is Jonathan and David's souls are knit together. They're knit together in regards to their differences. Listen, there was a status difference. Remember, Jonathan is the king apparent. He's a part of the royal family. And David's an obscure shepherd from a stupid little town called Bethlehem. He shouldn't even be in the same room with Jonathan, let alone be put together. And not only that, there's an age difference. Now, this was something new to me. I've always always seen the pictures where David and Jonathan are the same age and there's all these good-looking teenage kind of guys and they're just kind of hanging out. Yo, dude. Okay? Jonathan, realistically, was at least 11 years, if not 30 years, senior of David. At least 11 to 30 years, senior of David. So it's this older guy who's making a connection with this young guy. And he gives to him... A loyal love. And so what happens is he gives this to him. He's knit together because they're both warriors and they're both, listen, men after God's own heart. And so there's a connection that happens. And what happens is that now Jonathan does something that's odd. But he does something called what we know is cutting a covenant. And so what happened, literally, they would take animals and they would cut the animals in half. And they would allow the animals to be on both sides. And the blood would run to the middle. And then both people would walk through the blood. And they would make a promise to each other saying, If I break my promise to you, this is what should happen to me. I should be killed. And so Jonathan does this to David. And this is unlikely. This is unheard of. Jonathan, the heir apparent, the prince, goes to a nobody and says, I promise my life for your life. And not only does he do it with a covenant relationship, but he does it in regards to changing David's identity completely. How does he do that? Well, he honors him by giving him the royal garments. He takes him out of the shepherd clothes and he says, this is how I see you, David. You are an heir to the king. You are co-equal with me. And so as he gives him these royal garments, the, the, the reality is it's the, the diamond in the rough i see at the core of who you are and this obscure shepherd boy becomes in essence the chosen king and so what jonathan is saying to him i must decrease so that you must increase and that goes against the world standard isn't it live for yourself look out for number one if you don't look out for yourself nobody else will right that's what the world tells us and what god tells us he says you know what you die to yourself and you live for others and so Jonathan is saying, I'm going to decrease why David increases. It's the same thing that John the Baptist does with Jesus. I've got to get out of the way so that Jesus might be glorified as the Savior. But if we're honest, Jesus messes things up for us, doesn't he? You asked me to give my life away? Come on. So what happens is we have to ask the question, do we surrender our lives, and I'm not paying attention, sorry. Do we surrender our lives to, to Jesus' royal authority? do we surrender? Do we want him to increase? Do we want to get our identity of saying not that that we're saved by the enemy, but that we're saved by a king? If you are saved, you are a child of the king. That's your identity. No one in here, if you are saved, is a nobody. Nobody in here is insignificant. The king, the Lord died for you. And he prays for you individually. So remember your identity. Remember the loyal love that has been given for you. So this is what happens with Jonathan and David. But there's a problem that comes up. And the problem is this. We live in a world of broken promises. What do I mean by that? Well, if you remember last week, Saul has been going through the process of trying to murder David. He's gone to the place where he wants to pin David to the wall. He throws a spear and tries to kill David. Then he starts to have murderous plots. He starts saying, well, I'm not going to kill him, just me personally, but I'm going to have situations happen where he's going to be killed by accident. We're in a place now where Saul has taken those murderous plots and he's gone public with it. He's made David enemy number one. He has hit squads out now. He wants David dead. And so what happens is it starts a process with David. But there's something that goes on. Jonathan, this is all happens in chapter 19. Believe me, you can go back. I'm not making this up. Jonathan goes and steps in. And he reasons with his father. Dad, what are you doing? Why are you trying to kill David? Didn't David kill Goliath? Doesn't David, isn't he your faithful servant? Doesn't David do everything for your glory and honor? This is a good thing. This is a good person. Why are you trying to kill him? And so listen to what Saul does. Saul listens to him and he's reminded of the wisdom. And Saul, listen, swears an oath to God. You're right, Jonathan. I'm going to listen to what you have to say. I'm going to listen to your words of wisdom and I'm not going to kill David. He swears an oath. Now for Jonathan, that's it. My dad swore an oath and my dad swore an oath to God. He's not going to break this promise, right? Wrong. It's meaningless vows. And we understand it because we live in a day where vows and promises are meaningless. How many of us understand that contracts can be broken? Who truly has a lifetime warranty on anything? How quickly that changes when the name of the company changes. Oh, we're no longer in business. We've just changed our name. So all those warranties before that were good under this name is no longer valid. How many things are excluded from your warranties? Are excluded from your contracts? What about the treaties between countries? Those are infallible. But not only that, we live in a day and age where marriage, listen, vows. We still use the word. Marriage, vows, promises. And you wear promises. And they mean absolutely nothing in today's day and age. Because it's all about you. It's all about your happiness. It's all about being number one. And that's where Saul was. I want to keep my kingdom. I want to stay in control. And this person, David, is a problem to me. And he needs to be eradicated. And so Saul breaks his promise. And so David finds himself now having to flee the problem gets so bad listen that now Saul is sending listen he's sending death squads to his own home to his own daughter's home into her own bedroom to come and seek the life of David so much so that David is brought out through a window to escape and so he flees from that and then he does a good thing in my opinion he runs to God he runs to Samuel and he stays with Samuel, tells Samuel what's going on. And Samuel said, okay, come with me. We're going to go to this area and we're going to stay there. Now what happens in chapter 19 is again, Saul sends a death squad. We know where he's at. He's with Samuel. Go get him. Well, the death squad gets there and they start to prophesy. Jesus takes them over. They can't handle it. So Saul says, well, I'm going to go and take care of this. Saul starts to prophesy. Then all of a sudden, David leaves. Now, this boogers me up. If you are in a safe place with God and with God's people, why did David leave? Hmm. I'm not sure it's right. Should David had stayed with Samuel and had God's protection? Sounds wise. God didn't tell him. We don't find anything that tells him God said to leave. This was a safe place for David to be. And I think it's wrong what David does. And I'll tell you why I think it's wrong, according to what the scripture tells us. So, he runs to man, but when he does this, listen, what David does is he removes his eyes from the Lord to his problem. This is Listen, this is David, who was so assured of himself, goes out and kills Goliath, kills the giant, and is so assured of himself in his faith, but now finds himself going, why? Why me? God's going to take care of me? I'm going to die. I'm Listen, what he says to Jonathan, I'm one step away from death. That's how bad it is, Jonathan. I'm one step away from death all the time. Where's the faith of the one who killed the giant? See, what he does when he comes to, to Jonathan is he says this. He talks about injustice. What what have I done? John, come on, tell me, what did, I, what did I do? And then the rest of the things, all you see is my, me, mine. A lot of personal pronouns. He wasn't talking about God. It wasn't, he wasn't talking about God's. Word, He wasn't talking about God's faithfulness. Remember, that's what he said about Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised person who's coming against the Lord's army? Who's attacking God? Now it's all about him. Me, mine, what's going on? What is about me? And only that, he asked Jonathan to lie. So I think what David is doing at this point is wrong. I don't think he should have left Samuel. However, God allows him to run to Jonathan. And I think it's a good thing in regards to Jonathan because Jonathan points him back to who? God. That's what we're supposed to be to one another. We're supposed to be people who are going through the trials and temptations and we point everybody back to the covenant that's being tested. There is reality where there is disloyal relationships. Saul is trying to kill David. Jonathan doesn't believe it. And so David is there saying, Jonathan, I want you to understand your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan's saying, no way. He doesn't do anything big or small without talking to me. I would know about if he's trying to kill you. And David's saying, you don't, man. You don't get it. Your your dad is pulling the wool over your eyes. He's lying to you. He's keeping you in the dark. Not my dad. My dad promised you're going to live. That's my dad. He promised. Now, how hard of a situation is this? The king, your father, made a promise to you publicly and now is renewed and rejected that. So Jonathan says, all right, David, here's the deal. And he does something very wise here. May God be the witness. He doesn't trust David just on David's word. He wants to go back and seek out what? The truth. What is the truth? Is David just paranoid? He knows his father has given him this um, commitment and promise to the Lord to protect David. And so he says, what we have to do is we're going to go back to the Lord. We have to seek the Lord. We have to seek, listen, Christian friendships that point us back to the word. We have to be people who are always being pointed back to God and his truth. And so what Jonathan does, he says, I want you to understand, David, that I am renewing my covenant with you. You can be assured of the promises. I am for you and not against you. And I'm going to prove that to you. And so what he does is he tells now David to go in peace, to go in shalom. And he does this a couple of ways. One, he says, may the Lord be with you. May the Lord be with you. And again, this is bringing up the whole aspect of the, the Hesed love. It's, it's, it's a loyal love. May God is faithful to you, David. And I'm going to be faithful to you. Trust that. Trust it. And then not only that, he gives them a prayer of blessing. You want to know if you love people in this church? Are you praying for them? Even the people that have hurt you the most, pray for them. Because it has been my experience that you cannot hate people that you are praying for. If you are truly crying out to God, God, please bless them, encourage them, love them. Then the reality becomes, am I the sinful one? And so we get to this reality where he's, he's saying, I'm giving you a prayer of blessing. I'm calling back the loyal love. I'm decreasing so that, you might increase, so that you might increase, David. And then he does something very crazy. He makes a promise to the future generations. Now, that should be something of importance. It's one of the reasons why we have a vow that's given, a vow that's given during our baptism. When I ask you to raise your hand if you're going to help in the rearing and and leading of these children as they walk with Christ, that's a vow that you make, a promise, that we're going to be a part of raising the children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And this can be through teaching, it can be through discipleship, godly influence. It's why we're a multi-generational church. The day you forced me to become a church where we put our kids in one place and our youth in another place and the seniors in another place is the day I leave this church because we have to be a generational church. We made promises to one another. It's why we had the little girls come to the showers for the brides and for the babies. It's why we asked the older people, can we pick you up at night, even if you don't drive at night anymore? We want you to be a part of things because we're committed one to another. What can you learn from the elder people? wisdom truth what do you use from the young you still gain energy you still gain the 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 love for loving the people and praying for the next generation you think the world's going to hell in a handbasket think of the next generation what are they going to grow up with are we praying for them it's one of the things now i love football so i still go to a friday night football game and so we try to hit people. There's Jonathan Ramos plays for Holy Trinity. We have people that are in the bands at Satellite. We got people that play at O'Galley High School. Dylan Wood is playing football for O'Galley. We got Clay playing for the JV. It's not this great, but we still go on Thursday night and sit in the Nat Field stands and stuff like that. I'm so bad. Well, you think... Well, Let me, I got a story about Clay. But we go through this process, and I continue to go to, to Friday night football games. But it became a thing... And one of the things that was told to me in in youth ministry that I think is one of the best things is don't do anything alone if you can do it with someone else. Anything. This means if you're a cook and you like to bake, invite someone to come over and bake with you. If you fix cars, invite people to come with you. If you go out and fish, invite people to go with you. If you crochet, invite people to come with you. Teach. Spend time. So I go to football games. Now I like to go to the football game to actually watch the football game. But now we have a group where we're having to take two vehicles because of kids, teenagers, and younger who want to go just to be with adults. That's a, that's a privilege. That's an honor. And sometimes more ministry happens during those opportunities than it ever does here during this hour. When I go and pray for you at all hours, when I come to the, the hospital, when I, you wake me up in the middle of the night with concerns or, or whatever, it's a blessing It's part of Hesed love. It's loyal love. And if you don't feel like I love you that loyally, then come talk to me because I'm obviously doing something wrong. I take the understanding of being your pastor seriously to where I want to lay down my life for you. And that's where Jonathan is with David. And he says, David, at some point, God's going to take away all of your enemies. And I'm begging you, please don't forget my family. Don't forget the next generation. And then Jonathan finds himself now in a position where he has to answer the question, am I a faithful friend or am I about personal gain? Because what Jonathan does, he goes in to the feast and there's a feast for the new moon. And again, the first night wasn't a big deal because you could be considered. It was more of a a night considered to be, if you were unclean, you weren't supposed to be there. So obviously there were some people that wouldn't show up. And it was just kind of like, what's the big deal? Unclean. But this goes three days, right? Right. It's what the Bible tells us. So the second day when David's not there, that ticks Saul off. And so he goes to Jonathan, and Jonathan perpetuates the lie that David has told him. Granted. And he says, I've allowed David to go home. And this angers Saul. And he begins to bring this up in regards to Jonathan's personal kingdom. One, Saul is angry. But not only is he angry, he curses his own son's mom. Listen to the depravity. He sees his son's holiness as family shame. You want to live for Christ? You want to do the right thing? You are no son of mine. (laughs) How's that? No son of mine. And do you understand that I'm doing this all for you, Jonathan? This is your kingdom. I'm going to be dead, but this is going to be your kingdom. And now David, he's someone who could take your kingdom away. And Jonathan replies to his dad, I'm okay with that. And it so angers Saul that, listen, what does he try to do? He tries to kill his own son. Now, how messed up is that? I'm doing this all for you, son, but now you've taken me off. I want to kill you. He wants to kill his own son. And yet Jonathan says, I'm more about God's kingdom than my own. I am the one who cares more with what God wants to do with this kingdom. So the Lord's with David, so I'm with David. And so Jonathan was willing to lose his personal kingdom for God's. And he knew God was always going to be faithful. So as we put that in perspective, when we start asking some very specific questions, whose kingdom are we about? Our own? And if it is our own, at what cost? Or if it's God's, at what cost? And then Jonathan gives to David. After all this has happened, he tells him, David, go and shalom. And we use the word peace, but it's so much more an understanding of the Hebrew understanding of shalom. It's saying, be one, be content, be fulfilled with God. And he says this to David, I'm willing to lay down my life for you spiritually, emotionally, and for Jonathan, even physically lay down his life. There's another part in the scripture that talks about laying down our lives. This in John chapter 15, verse 12. And this is what Jesus says. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Now again, easy words to say here in America because very few of us will be called to actually die, physically die for someone else. But how about us who at the cost of winning an argument remain silent so as not to attack another person? How many of us will die to ourselves so that others might increase? See, that's much harder. Do you really want other people to be thought of more highly than yourself? That's hard. That's what he's called us to do, to make other people more important, to lay down our lives that we would show that we love one another. And the only way we can do that is if we're in tune with what God says. You know what? David writes a psalm in regards to this time. It's psalm 59. Listen to some of these words. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. For each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. But listen to how he responds. But you, O Lord... You're the one who laughs at them. You're the one who hauled the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. And God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. David's able to live a life because he trusts in God. We're able to live our life if you trust in Jesus Christ. Quit looking at the situations and keep your eyes focused upon Christ and when we do that, then what happens is that we have peace in the midst of the storm. Storms are coming, people, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. God told us that. It's going to get worse for us Christians. So, where's our hope? For David, it was in the old covenant. God is faithful, and he will save me from my enemies. Our hope's found in the new covenant. It's found in Jesus Christ who paid for our sins upon the cross. But not only that, as he died and was buried, he is alive. He's alive. And he's coming back. And next time he doesn't come back gentle, he comes back as the conquering king. And we have our faith and our hope in the Hesed, the loyal love of a king who's always faithful. And tells us, you are that child of the king. Stop worrying. Stop losing hope and run back to your Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we like David get caught up in relationships. Where Lord, there are sometimes we're like the mighty warrior, where we look at Goliath and we say, "This is no problem" because we see we uh, serve and we're for the living God. And yet, Lord, the next day, or maybe even the next moment, we might be saying. Lord, how are you even going to take care of this? I've got to go find someone who can. Lord, forgive us for when we try to be our own saviors, when we try to fix things on our own and we circumvent you. But, Lord, I'm thankful that you put godly men and women into each other's lives and specifically in the church. And you call us to love one another and you call us to encourage one another and to build one another up. And, Lord, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to point each other back to Jesus Christ, back to the living hope, back to Christ coming back again. We win because you've won. And Lord, there is nothing in this life that can defeat us or keep us from the love, that loyal love of Jesus Christ, who are, who's with us in good days and bad days, in light and in darkness. Nothing can separate us from that love of Jesus Christ. So we rest. And only do we rest, but we worship and we give you all the glory and honor. For we pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen.